0: Other seeds fell on good soil, and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. It was delayed, but we'll take it. It was all right. Hey, welcome, we're doing it. It's a month, dad's gone. Kevin and I are gonna try real hard not to burn this place down before he comes back. (laughs) Uh, We're gonna do it this way this summer. Kevin and I have sort of traded off just the way that our schedules worked and stuff through the summer. Uh, I'm gonna do four weeks and then he's gonna follow up and do three. And we're just really excited. Um, I didn't mention this last hour, but it was on my heart coming up here. Uh, You need to know that for us as young teaching pastors, this is as good as it gets. Uh, to have a church that trusts you, to to take the pulpit and to fill the enormous shoes of our senior pastor, to preach uh, for a, for a, a you know seven week stretch is just unbelievable. Kevin and I were on the golf course the first year. they asked us to do this, and we both looked at each other and kind of just went, can you believe they're gonna do this? And at the time, it was like three or four weeks, and we were like, is this, this is pretty stupid, right? Like, this is, this is gonna be weird. And sure enough, uh, we're still here doing it, so we're gonna rock and roll through it. Uh, my series, these next four weeks, is entitled Timeless Teachings, uh, and here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take four weeks and look at four different parables, stories, that Jesus told And he does an incredible thing with each and every one of them, different focal points for our Christian lives. But I kind of said like, hey, let's take a look at 2,000-year-old stories that Jesus told. Let's see. Uh, Do they still have anything to say for our lives today? Uh, It occurred to me that'd be a pretty aggressive left turn if they didn't, so it'd be a quick way out of this teaching pastor gig. But uh, I'm pretty confident that we'll find something great in each and every one of them each week. But uh, this particular week, we're gonna look at this parable that you just heard read of the soils, or the parable of the sower. And we're gonna look at each of these four different experiences that Jesus describes. What I love most about what we get this week is we get Jesus sitting down and talking us through kind of what doesn't work as well as what does. Which we see all the time in our culture In our society, we see great successes born out of, in some cases, almost catastrophic disaster. Some of the most successful people in the world today have been born out of really challenging failures. George Steinbrenner the owner of the Yankees, one of the most wealthy men in sports, bankrupted his very first team. Bill Gates of Microsoft watched his first company crumble. Walt Disney was fired from a newspaper for, of all things, a lack of creativity. Steve Jobs was fired from Apple by the board of directors only to return to the company at a later date and turn it into the tech giant that we know it as today. And lastly, Milton Hershey started and cratered three candy companies before finding the success that would lead into the company we now know as Hershey. Great, great success stories, all born out of catastrophic failure. And what Jesus is gonna do today is he's gonna sit down and take four different experiences with God and go like this, not this, not this, not this, but this thing here. And what I intend to do with this today is to take these four different experiences and show how I believe that Jesus is walking through a progression that's super easy to miss if we read this passage the wrong way. So before we do that, let me just pray and ask the Lord to work in some specific areas of our hearts today. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with full recognition that we can and maybe even have read this passage the wrong way in the past. Lord, we wanna invite you in. Holy Spirit, would you do a great work in us today as we walk through and look at this passage with fresh eyes, seeing all of the incredible power that we've seen for years around salvation, but maybe looking at it for ourselves in a new and different way. We lift this time up to you, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me. We pray this in your name, amen. All right, so we're diving into chapter 13 of the Gospel of Matthew, and with that being the case, there's 12 chapters that have come before it, and everything that is going to flow out of chapter 13 is sort of on the heels of 12. And chapter 12 is all about Jesus fighting with the ever-judgmental Pharisees. They've got religion all figured out, and they're sitting here listening to Jesus take a radically new path, and they're going, nope, and they're just, they're judgy, really, really judgy. So there's a literary context that has that as the background, but there's a cultural context that is equally as important. We are now hearing a story that is 2,000 years old, you just heard read, that is being spoken on to a first century agrarian culture. The predominant driving economic force in the first century is agricultural. And so what Jesus is doing is taking something that the culture would have understood in this agricultural metaphor or parable that we're hearing, and he's taking it, they would understand it super clearly, and he's going to make a much more profound point with some of these points. Uh, I kind of dug something out this week that I think is really helpful. It's from Jerome. Jerome is a Latin priest, theologian, and historian that died in Bethlehem in AD 420. But he makes some really great points as to the purpose of parables, and it's good for us to hang on to him for our entire series for the next month. Let's take a look. Jerome says, it should be noted that he did not speak everything to them in parables, but many things. For if he spoke everything to them in parables, the people would go away without gaining anything. Jesus mixes what is clear with what is obscure so that through the things they understood, they may be drawn toward the knowledge of the things they do not understand. That's the point of a parable. That's the point of any exemplification. It's to take something that might be an obscure concept and to put something in place that draws people closer so that they can gain some proximity to a concept. Jerome is making the point that that's exactly what Jesus is doing in the parables. And one last thing by way of setup is for us to look at what are the components of this parable and the very first thing that we take a look at is the seed. The seed represents the word of God or the gospel. These are definitions that our senior pastor gave when he taught this passage years ago and and he sat down and he said, "Listen, here's the deal. The seed is the word of God or the gospel." For those of you in this room today, or any of our rooms, Cactus Northridge Chapel, or online, if you are joining us and you're new to church, one, welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But two, if you've never heard the gospel, which that word means good news, if you've never heard the good news of Jesus Christ, here is about as compact and succinct a way as I can put it to you. God loves you, he has a plan for your life. Because that plan is in place, He says, okay, I got to get to humanity because I love them, but they've wandered from me. So he sends his son to die in your place for your sins. And the greatest news of all, the greatest news of this love story is that that plan is available to everyone by simply accepting Jesus as your savior through an invitation to be in relationship with him. It's that simple. That's the good news. That's the gospel right there. And when Jesus sits back and he says, this is the seed, it's the word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the next component? We got somebody doing the sowing. Who's the sower? Well, in this case, it's Jesus, God, or as the story continues, great plot twist, he uses us. It's the weirdest thing in human history is that Jesus comes back in and he goes, okay, now that you understand the good news of who I am, I want you to take that good news, go back out and share it with others. Basically, like Jamie has said it in the past, you're just one beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus comes in and says that, but the sower in this case can represent any one of those three. Modern day, it would be us sharing the good news of the gospel, the hope that we've found with those who might find themselves hopeless. And that's the sower. Lastly, what's the soil? The soil is kind of the key component today. It's where we're gonna spend a lot of our time focused. The soil is the heart or life of an individual. It is the place where the seed is sown by the sower. And as we look at these things today, what I love the most is Jesus is gonna dive in and we're not gonna look at the uh, parable itself. We're gonna fast forward into verses 18, all the way through 23, where Jesus sits down with his disciples and he says this, okay, you just heard what I said to them. Here is what it means. And he starts with verse 18 where he says, hear then the parable of the sower. And verse 19 starts with this. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Okay, path, understand this. The path in this case is a first century path. It's probably hard, compacted dirt, or in some cases, a cobblestone road, and that's what the path would have been. Any of you garden? Where are my green-thumbed Christians, right? One one person still gardens. That's fantastic. (laughs) It's great. But here's what happens. Are you gonna go out and sow? on the hard, compacted path that leads out to your garden? Or are you going to look for the rich soil? Duh. This is saying that hard, compacted soil, imagine throwing a seed on it and going, well, that'll probably turn out to be a tomato plant at some point. You go, no, there's no chance. It doesn't have anything that can get down into the soil to penetrate and to really take root. Jesus is making the example here in this verse saying that that person, that is the one who hears and does not understand it. And the evil one comes. Satan comes and says, not a chance. He is here to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So he snatches that gospel message away. Here's what's hard in our culture today. Okay? We hear this, for those of us who are more compassionate, more merciful, we hear this and we go, let me get this straight. Somebody's gonna stand there at the end of time before God and go, I just didn't get it. And he goes, you're done. Depart from me, I never knew you. That sounds really, really rough. Here's what I want you to understand about this soil. It talks about the understanding after the hearing, and I I wanna throw this over this whole message, okay? I think we have a tendency as Christians to hear this and hear it as a judgment seat message. End of time, this was your soil, you were done. Here's what I would say. I have seen so many Christians along the way who have had hardened soil type hearts and eventually they end up accepting Christ. And you know what they come to me and say? You know what, I heard the gospel back here, and back here, and back here, and you know what? Life had finally softened the soil of my heart and I was finally able to receive it, and receive it with joy. But clear back here, their soil was really hard. So I don't want us to overimagine, and I'm gonna push this point pretty hard today, I don't want us to over-imagine what it is that's taking place here. What Jesus is saying is a hardened heart can't receive the gospel. That's the point it's making. Just leave it there for right now, but hear this, for those of us who sit back and say, gosh, someone doesn't understand it, and they're just off, they don't get eternity with Christ, this is a helpful deal. It's out of the commentary, the Zondervan exegetical commentary on the New Testament. It's my favorite commentary that I research out of, but it says this. The clause, and does not understand, from our passage, brings in all the imagery from the Isaiah quote in verses 13 through 16. Okay, this is what it describes. They have hardened their hearts and stopped their ears from hearing and heeding the message. They do not wish to understand. This is not inadvertent ignorance, but studied rejection. Different. You see, those of us who have compassionate hearts go, okay, so somebody just didn't get it? Listen, from my own experience, here's what I've found. People who have inadvertent ignorance typically respond to the gospel with curiosity. The the ignorant, the ones who've never heard it before, that's a harsh word, but what it simply means is, oh, this is new to me. And and guess what? Our post-Christian culture is producing more and more people who didn't grow up around church and are inadvertently ignorant to the gospel. And when their plan for life doesn't work out, do you know what happens next? Somebody like you or me ends up at a lunch or a coffee with them and goes, this is how I'm living my life. And they go, wait a minute, tell me about that again. They're curious to the gospel. What this passage is describing is a studied rejection, a hardened heart that says, I don't wanna understand that. Matter of fact, I want nothing to do with that gospel message. I've got a plan for my life, and I don't need any help with anybody else's plan. That is the hardened soil. The way I describe it at times, I use the example of, imagine a party. And at that party, there's an invitation. We're gonna cut cake at seven o'clock. On the back of the invitations, the directions to the party. 6.50 comes to the party that's being thrown, and the friend isn't there yet. So what happens? Somebody picks up the phone and says, hey, are you on your way to the party? Like, we're all here. Where are you? And they go, oh, yeah, I want to come to the party. Okay, well, what's going on? Oh, I just can't find it. Well, why not? The directions are on the back of the invitation. I didn't like those directions. I wanted to get to the party my own way. Well... But there's there's kind of one way to the party. You know, we live back in this area where there's one road that gets you there. Yeah, I'm going to take a different road, and I'm still going to get to the party. When people look at me and they say, "I think you can get to God through any path you want," I go, "That's fine. That's fine. I, I don't have any argument with that." But I'll say this: If you want to get to the God of the Bible, there's only one way. There's a difference. If you wanna to get to an obscure, secular God concept, that's fine, but the God of the Bible says this, if you wanna have a relationship with the Father, you gotta know the Son. And he says, there, it, it is only, how do you come to the Father? Through the Son. There is one road. He is the way and the truth and the life. That is what the Bible says. The invitation is super clear, best news in the world. It is available to everyone, but if you don't like the directions and you wanna get there your own way, the God of the Bible says, I'm so sorry, There is one way. Nobody gets to the Father except through me, says Jesus. And some people sit back, harden their heart, and say, I don't want to do that that way. And that's fine. I've been in my own life at some times where I go, my plan's working just fine. I say a lot of times, people are like, millennials are leaving the church in droves. Show me an 18 to 27-year-old who doesn't think they've got the world by the tail. Okay, that's not generationally specific. Every generation has done that. But that's the reality of this soil. Now, here's the bad news. That's the easy one. The next two soils are real, real hard. Let's take a look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, 20 through 21. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when the tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Boy, this soil's different. It's not hard. The seed doesn't just sit on top. This soil receives it and receives it with joy. What is every mind in this room, online, or in one of our rooms thinking right now? Rustin, this church pays you. You went to seminary. You are here today to tell us whether or not this person is saved. Can I lob a question back at you? Why do you want to know if this person is saved? Why is that the first question that comes to all of our minds? Why is that the first question that came to my mind when I started researching this passage and thinking about it this week? Why do we want to know if they're saved? I want to ask you one more question, because here's the deal. I think salvation is the most important thing that any human being will wrestle with on their time here on earth. And I'll go as far as to say, I think salvation is absolutely the point of this passage, but I want to ask one more question, whose salvation is it worried about? Is it worried about ours or theirs? Is it worried about your salvation or is it worried about their salvation? Is it worried about mine or the rest of the world's? Because I can sit here today, and this is what I want to submit to you. I can make a strong biblical argument that this person is saved I can make a strong biblical argument that they are not. And the reason I think that ambiguity exists is because I don't think that's the point of this passage. I don't think Jesus is showing up today, and I'm gonna give you a good reason why to tell us, here's a metric for you to go out and judge the world by. Here's the biblical case for this person being saved. This soil had a seed. It was the gospel. It says it received said gospel, and it didn't just receive it, it received it with joy. So for those of us who sit back and say, all you need to do to be saved is just receive the gospel, you got that. For those of you that go a step further and say, until I see fruit, I don't believe this person is saved, I will say, what are the fruits of the Spirit? Peace, love, joy, patience. Not only did the gospel get received, it produced a fruit of joy in this person's life. I'll go even further if you wanna nerd out with me. I can walk you through how the Greek language makes an incredible case with the word for received in this passage through Matthew and Mark being this agricultural word for received. But I'll tell you, Luke goes a step further. He doesn't just use the agricultural word which he does use for the entire passage but when Luke gets to this passage he switches from that word to dekomai which is a personal receiving of something to say that this person didn't just receive it this soil didn't just receive it but received it personally. And one last place where I'd go, hey, let me nudge you a little bit. What about Peter? Didn't Peter fall away? and fall away in this exact same way where the world came pressing in on account of the word, Christ, and said, hey, wait a minute, aren't you with him? I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him, rooster crows, was Peter not saved? Was Peter not restored? You see, I can make a great biblical case that this soil is saved. You know what else I can do? I can tell you right now, it says that he fell away, and it meant what it said. So which interpretation's right? Is he saved or is he not saved? What I want you to to look at today, because great pastors, great theologians have made arguments on both sides of this case, but I really see this as a question of what is Jesus really trying to communicate because it's being left with a decent level of ambiguity here regardless of how staunchly you might decide, I want to ask the question, why is it that we want to know this? Because really there's only three camps. You either want to know this, one, because you are sitting back today in this room or somewhere online and and you're going like this. Hey Russ, real quick, is soil number two an option? Like, I mean, is it possible for me to come in, get pretty pumped about Jesus a while back because I was really moved and then just have the option to kind of fall away but still be saved? Like you're gonna someday get to heaven and go, Jesus, rocky soil, I'm here. Uh, I know you're giving out houses. I'm kind of a minimalist. Mine can be real small. Where do you want me to go? Like, here's what this passage is absolutely not saying. Soil two is the goal. The point that Jesus is making is this is not where you want your salvation to end, in a rocky, rootless place where you are not being held firm in your heart with the word. Second way that I think, and I I wanna cover this, you may be sitting here today as a mother, as a father, as a friend, okay? And in your head, you're sitting back and you're saying this, I got a kid, I got a spouse, I got a brother or sister, I'm worried about their salvation. I had my parents here, sitting right over here last hour and I said this with them in the room, I've been that kid, (laughs) I've been the wandering wayward child I'll tell you, as a, as a recovering member of that group, the best thing I ever had done for me and the best thing you can do for that wayward person is pray that God brings them to the end of themselves. It is only at that point that hardened hearts become soft Sitting back and hoping that this person is saved is simply saying, can you keep them in this broken place and keep them saved? Go further than that. Pray that the Lord breaks up the soil of their heart like he did mine and brings me, still super broken, into a submitted place. My heart breaks for you because I've heard about the pain that my family went through while I went wayward. But I'll submit to you, that is the best thing you can do for that wayward individual. Pray for them but let the salvation be in the Lord's hands. Don't you try to generate it. Lastly, and this is really where I wanna park our message today. You're sitting back with this passage and you're basically seeing God's word, God's holy word, which it says, just like uh, we, we talked about ahead of time, it illuminates our hearts, right? And the only other thing that you can do other than the two camps I described is to sit back and hear Jesus preaching this message and going, here is a light to illuminate. But because our salvation has become assumptive in our Christian walk, we go, well, this light can't be for me. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna take my light and go start shining into the lives of everybody else. (laughs) What What about my neighbor across the street? Oh man, that is a hardened heart. I can tell you right now with this great metric that Jesus gave me, I'm gonna go illuminate my neighbor for a little bit you know what? Now that we're talking about it, looks like my wife's got some rocks in her heart. She's the worst. Oh, and lastly, look at this. My, what about my brother-in-law? Boy, he's got thorns all over his life. The light is meant to illuminate the human heart. Where do you think I'm going with this, church? You might have your Bible pointing the wrong way. You see, what I'd submit to you today is that what Jesus is doing here is giving us a command, and I intend to make a strong case, that the light is not meant to go in judgment of anyone else's salvation except your own. Who judges salvation? Say Jesus. Jesus. That was lame, but we're gonna run with it. (laughs) Sounds like you guys need some convincing, maybe a Bible verse or two. I'm glad you asked, I seem to have a few. Acts 10.42, what's it say? And he commanded us to preach to the people. What's our job? To preach to the people. What's his job? We're gonna testify that he, uh, that he is the appointed one by God. What's his job? To judge of the living and the dead. We preach good news. He judges salvation. John 5.22, for the Father judges no one. Not even the Father is supposed to judge. Why? but he has given all judgment to the son. Five verses later, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Only the son of man judges salvation. That is it. So with that in place, how does does Jesus talk to us about judging? Hey guys, let's take a look at judgment. Does he say, you know what? I'm pretty good at it, but why don't you guys give it a spin? Let's take a look. James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That seems fairly clear. James 5.9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And lastly, let's see if it steps up a notch here, Matthew 7.2, for with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use will be measured to you. Jesus is the only one who will ever judge salvation. And he says, don't, don't. Matter of fact, let me add a consequence. If you want to be judged harshly in eternity someday, harshly judge the world. So let me run this logic through. Jesus sits back in his holy word and says, only I will judge salvation. Only I will judge salvation. I am the son of man appointed to execute judgment. You shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge, you shouldn't judge, but just in case, let me tell you a quick parable and give you a metric about how to go judge other people's salvation. That is completely antithetical to everything Jesus says. Matter of fact, just after Matthew 7, 2 comes what? Take the log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in somebody else's. This passage is being preached to tell us what our own salvation should look like, not what the world's should We have to be willing to take God's holy word, the scalpel of the word, and lay it sometimes painfully to our own heart because what Jesus is doing here is sitting back and giving us something that I think we miss all the time. Maybe, just maybe, we should do this. We should look at the fact that this passage wasn't meant to be a light that we shine into the world to reveal their lostness, but a light that was meant to be turned inward to reveal our own. Do you get that, church? You see, for so many of us, we're saved, but we're still lost. You hear that? Your salvation is secure. You're saved, but we're still lost. What Jesus is doing here, and I'm gonna walk this all the way out with you before we get out of here today, is he's sitting down and saying, first and foremost, I know the human heart. You guys are in love with horizontal things and not vertical things. And what I need you to know is you need the gospel, but don't stop there. (laughs) Don't just get the gospel. Turn my word inward and go looking for rocks. Let that light shine into your own heart and let it start looking for rocks, which by the way, is a painful process. He doesn't just stop there, he moves on. Let's look at verse 22. Matthew 13, 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. We got another plant. We got something coming up, but it's getting choked out because the riches, the anxieties, all the cares of the world are taking over. Do you know what soils two and three have in common? They're real worried about the world. They're really, really stressed about what's going on in the world. Soil too is sitting back. It's so in love with the world that the rocks don't ever let it give root. It's so afraid that when the world comes in in a Peter-type scenario going, you're a Christian, you follow him, there was never enough root. There was a lot of excitement, but there was never enough root to actually hold it. So the world comes pressing in going, who's with him? And it gets pushed away. This third soil is so in love with the world that it puts some roots down, but as it starts to grow up, it's just getting choked out by all the glittery, shiny comforts and things that we love here on this planet. you know why this is a timeless teaching? Because again, Jesus knows the human heart. Back in the first century, he is looking at a group of people who are agricultural specialists, and they're doing the same stupid stuff that we do today. Just because we have iPhones and technology, the game hasn't changed. We are sitting back in the same way that that group would and they're sitting there going, I want bigger barns. I want more land, more cows, more goats. Why do you think the passage says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills? Just translate it to modern day stuff. The human heart is always looking horizontally. It either wants the world to like it or it wants all the world's stuff. But Jesus is saying, don't stop at the gospel, shine it inward, go after rocks, go after thorns. I think one of the challenges for all of us here as we look at this is that it's really tough for us to miss how in love we are with the world. It's tough for us to get out of that lane. I would say we live in a, like we've all talked, hey, 4th of July, we celebrate religious freedoms, we celebrate all of our freedoms here. Here's the challenge. Those freedoms make it really hard for us to kind of experience a whole lot of the second soil. Okay? You can be a Christian. You're allowed. What do you think it's like in North Korea to be a Christian right now? They're not sitting around going, oh yeah, we can totally worship anywhere. That's not a thing. Same thing. You go to China, where all the churches have to be underground. You get caught as a Christian, you're doing jail time. That'll mess up your life. We're not having to really worry about that a whole lot. That may get messed up as we walk down the road a little bit more. But I would say soil three is really tough for us as Americans. We really feel it in a big, big way because the challenge that we have is that those thorns come in and they start telling us, boy, we love our comforts, don't we? We, we love the world so much. And here's what I want to submit to you today. What you love will define you. And what defines you, you will love. It's true for all of us. If we love the comforts of this world, we will start to do, define ourselves with how comfortable we can become. I do it all the time. And the Lord is constantly shining inward. Guys, you think it's hard to hear this stuff? You should try to preach it. You got to apply it to your own life first. You ask my wife. I've spent this whole week sitting here going, I am rocky and thorny. And if I'm gonna stand up in front of the Lord and say this stuff, I gotta be willing to go looking for rocks and thorns. And it's messy. In America, here's what's so hard for us. Uh, A good buddy of mine, his name's Dan Jessup. Uh, He was just here last hour. He he works for Young Life and he basically oversees a hemisphere for them. And he, he does international works with all of the different Young Life groups. And as we had uh, breakfast, it was a while ago, he said, you know what's so funny about this COVID-19 pandemic is that as I talk to folks in like Latin America or the Ukraine or some of these different places, they're so baffled at how disrupted America is by COVID-19. And I said, why? And he goes, because they're really used to people dying. (laughs) This isn't disrupting them at all. This is part of their normal life. Oh, and we're not used to that here the same thing. I went to Africa years ago and we had a driver. It was when we were in Uganda and his name was David. And me and my buddy, Chad, we would go in and David would pick us up at the airport and then would drive us around and basically keep us from getting, you know, into a bad part of town or would just transport us from here to there. And so we got to know him and we got to hear about his family and his kids. We came back just like six months to a year later, David, how are you? It's so good to see you again, my friend. And he would talk to us. We said, well, how's your wife? She's doing great. How are your kids? And we started going through the names of the kids. And he goes, Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Timothy, Timothy died. Oh my gosh. Immediately you were like, What if I lost one of my kids? David, how did he die? You know what broke my heart? He died of malaria. He died of something that I had a cure for in my backpack. I had malarone in my backpack. That kept me from getting malaria. His son died of something that was in my stinking backpack. I had three years' salary worth of cash, and I didn't have a lot of cash on me in, of this guy's salary in my backpack and medicine that could have saved his son. Do you know what David didn't say to me? Oh yeah, I wish I'd had your medicine. You know what he said? That's life. We're not good at suffering. We have so much comfort and we don't realize how many times, I don't realize how many times in my own life I allow the world to define me. I'll tell you, those who are close to me will tell you, I have been in a lengthy process of the Lord redefining me away from some of the things because of childhood trauma and crap that I went through that have come to define me and I overemphasize them in my life. And the Lord comes in and goes, "Um, Rustin, uh, this rock right here, it needs to come with me. I've used the example before. When the Lord starts pulling rocks and thorns out of our lives, it's just like this. It's like the Lord presses in and he goes into your body and he goes, this thing needs to come with me. And we sit back and it's, it's always the day we ask for this where it's like, you're just killing it. You're rocking and rolling. You're having a great worship time. You go, Lord, you can have anything in my life. I'm all yours. And then the Lord goes, great, this is in your way. And he starts pulling on something and you start going, oh, oh, not that. And he goes, uh, Rustin, this is a tumor, it's killing you. And I say back to him, that is an organ I need it to live. I've been relying on this broken part of me, this faulty definition that is sucking my life away from the salvation that I have in Christ, and the Lord is finally ready to take it. But I'm not ready for it to go. To be a Christian is to be a searcher of rocks and thorns. Not to stop at the gospel and say, yeah, I was actually soft enough to receive it but to put down deep roots to go, nothing comes between me and the word. And then to not just stop there, but to go, I don't want a thorny salvation. I want to continue to do the work to strip everything away so that the Lord has the most fertile soil imaginable so that verse 23 becomes my reality that for the one that was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it that he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, 60 and 30. Am I worried about my comforts or am I worried about yielding fruit? Am I worried about, and we're gonna talk about this next week, walking across the street at a great cost to me, but of great benefit to another to share the gospel? Do I have strong enough roots? Is it rockless enough in my soil that I'm not afraid about what my neighbor thinks of me? I'm more worried about their eternal salvation than I am about my temporary reputation? Am I willing to study, to hear God's word and understand it enough that the world is no longer defining me? I'm being defined by what my father says about me. I know that I'm the son of a king, that I have a place and I will be sustained because that is what the word of God is doing for us. The reason it's so important that we know the word, and one of the things that scares me the most about how biblically illiterate we're becoming as a church at times, is we don't know the word anymore. So what's defining us? What we love, our comforts, and the world. That's what's defining us. So when the world comes looking with some pressure, we start to crumble. That's what scares me a little bit right now, at times about my own salvation about how much I love the world, how comfortable I am. I didn't say this last hour, one of my favorite movies is A River Runs Through It, and it's narrated by Robert Redford, it's just this beautiful picture, it's just wonderful. But the father is a Presbyterian minister, and he has a church of like 35 people, and he labors all week on his message. And Brad Pitt's one of the sons, and they both sit there and they fly fish, and it's this beautiful artistic picture of everything. It's got some rough parts in it, but it's just a wonderful picture. And you know what I think about every time I see that movie? I get to to pastor here in Scottsdale. (laughs) It's real comfortable. I ask myself every time I see that movie, Rustin, if that's all it was, would you still do it? If the stage was small and the hymns were just written up on the wall, would you still do it? Or has this become all part of your thing? And I have to continue to turn, eat broken parts. Are you in this for you? Are you in this because it's a cool church? Are you in this? Guys, this is my heart that I gotta continue to run through this, rocks and thorns that the Lord keeps going, keep an eye on that one. Make sure it doesn't start to grow because it'll choke out what I wanna do here. Church, once we get the gospel, what Jesus is saying in this passage is not take this light and go make sure everybody else is saved. What he's saying is we have to go into the soil of our lives and we have to move past the gospel, into the rocks, into the thorns, and clear the way for Jesus to make something beautiful. Where there was once a void of a rock or a thorn, there's nothing left now. You have nothing from the world to rely on. Jesus says, I wanna bring life where there was nothing. He's real good at that. But what I wanna to do today is I wanna ask us to do something. I wanna ask us to respond to what the Lord may be doing in your heart. Some of you are here today. I'm gonna to give you full permission to be here. I just wanna to get to hot dogs and fireworks. That's fine. I'll leave you there. But for some of you today, you are having what I've sorta of had over this last week as I put this together to go, oh my, oh my. My heart isn't where I thought it was. I'm actually in need of the Lord doing something that I can't self-generate. It's heart change. I am in need of the Lord to be, and this is one of the names that's used for the Lord, Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. I'm in need of the Lord to do something that I can't self-generate. I'm in need of him taking a rock out of my life that I love too much for him to clear away thorns that I've actually started to wrap around me like a blanket because it feels good, even though it's ripping my salvation apart. I'm in need of Jesus to be Jesus, to be Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. We need him to provide for us in places like our identity. If your identity is wrapped in the world and the world comes for it, you're gonna to start to wander like Peter did. I need to be identified by the God who provides identities. I need to be defined. Lord, define me as so much more than my trauma-ridden self. Redefine me as a child of God. Bring me up out of the ashes and define me as something new. Restore me, sustain me. Be the God who provides sustenance. But provide for me, Jehovah Jireh. I do this with you guys a lot. I'm a verbal processor, I'm an external thinker. So I talk and that's how I find out what's going on inside me. It's ridiculously inconvenient. You can't have a quiet moment and just go, oh, we thought about this and now I've walked away. So here's the thing, if you ever see me driving around the city uh, in my red truck and my mouth's moving, I'm probably not on the phone. I'm either talking to God or talking to myself. Either way, just pray for me, okay? Because that's what I need. But as I've driven around this last couple of weeks, the Lord's doing some redefining in my own life and it's painful. Jamie always says, and I'll say the same thing, it's nothing that disqualifies me from ministry. It's just Christianity's hard. It's rocks and thorns, it's bumpy, it's bloody. And that's just part of what it looks like to become more like Jesus. And your pastors are no different. We're working really hard to look more like him. We're not even ahead of you guys in some places. We're just sitting back going, Lord, here's a rock and it's too heavy for me to pick up. I'm in need of the Lord to provide me for strength. And as I've driven around, I've I've had this same song that has just been washing over me. It's it's a it's a current wonderful worship song. It's called Jira, which means provide. It's the God who provides. It, I I just I've worked really hard uh, over the last thirty minutes to do this. I want to provide us with a moment. Most of the time, we do worship to prepare our hearts for the word. I want you to know I've spent 30 minutes a day in the word to prepare you to worship. I want us to respond, for those of us whose hearts are ready to. I want us to respond and sing these lyrics. We're also going to take communion during that time. Spoiler alert. I'm not going to lead you through it. <laughs> I'm going to let you do it, just you and the Lord. You got the little cups with the diamond tap inside that tastes taste terrible, doesn't it? It's all right. We got them. They're self-contained. They're right there. But here's what I want to tell you. You're going to take communion today when you're ready. Someday it's just going to be you and the Lord. There's not, I'm not going to show up with any of you and be like, hey, how's it going? Uh, this is Ed, super nice guy, tithes really well, really loved you. How do you feel about him? It's just going to be you and Jesus standing there. And I just want you to have that moment today. But I want us to respond in song out of hearts that are broken in a new way and we see a need for Jesus. And here's the lyrics that we're going to sing today. It says, I'll never be more loved than I am right now. You're always holding me up, and there's nothing you will do to let me down. It doesn't take a trophy to make you proud. I'll never be more loved than I am right now. I'm going through a storm, but I won't go down. I hear your voice carried in the rhythm of the wind to call me out. You would cross an ocean, so I wouldn't drown. You'll never be more loved than you are right now. You are Jira. you are enough. Jireh, you are enough. I will be content in every circumstance. You are Jireh, you are enough. Church, for those of us whose journeys are painful, for those of us who are willing to start actually digging in to a rocky, thorny Christianity, these words have been a salve over me in the last couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years, it has been a place where the Lord has come in and gone, I know it's hard, but this is what's true. And the truth has become a, a foundation that even though at times, guys, I throw radical spiritual tantrums, my wife will tell you, she'll come back to the bathroom and she's like, hey, how you doing? And I'm like, oh, and she's like, ooh, you were fine like 10 minutes ago. And I'm like, well, I'm not fine anymore. you know. And that's just what I do with the Lord and I wish it was different, but it's who I am. And it's in times like these where songs that I just long to teach you to allow our worship leaders to lead you through, they come through and they start to redefine me. They redefine because I can look to a God who says he'll provide and then sit back and even though his timing is never as fast as I want it to be, I can sit back and say, I will be content in every circumstance because you are enough. So as we move into this time, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, today is one of those times where we sit back and we just simply say, we are in need of you. We need you to be Jireh, the one who is enough. We need you to provide for us in so many different ways. I would not even begin to define all the circumstances or even number them, but you, you are sitting over all of them. You are more than those of us who have lost. You are those of us, uh, you are over all of that that has been sick, that has been worn out, that has been traumatized or abused. You are the God who is above all those things, which means you can sustain, provide, identify. You can bring us through the darkest of seasons because that's who you are. And for those who are sitting back today in this room or online saying, I have never been provided for by this God. Your prayer is simple today. If you're the hardened soil and you're going, that is totally me. I have actively rejected and resisted this seed since I've heard it from the beginning of time and I don't want it, but today I do. Our invitation of this church is to ask you just simply, this is your prayer today, Jesus Christ, I come to you and I recognize the hardness of my heart. That changes today. I am a sinner in need of a savior. I don't want my plan anymore, but I want yours. I receive your gospel as truth for my life and I don't just need you as a savior, I need you as my Lord to help me work the rocks and the thorns out of my life from this day forward. That is your prayer today for the rest of us who have softened our hearts but we are now searching for rocks and thorns. Lord, we come to you in recognition of how painful this process is. We thank you for your grace as you sit back and lovingly walk at our pace for this, which is crazy to us, that you love us enough to leave us broken in places where we can't handle the restoration yet. Jesus, we give ourselves into your hands during this time of passionate response. We recognize that it is you and you alone that we take communion for, that it is your body broken, it is your blood shed, and we will do this in remembrance of you, amen.